patients actually like a clear diagnosis. And I think that's important too because it helps plan prognosis as well, helps you guide them in what their likely prognosis is, what length of time treatment's going to take, what are the different treatment options, whether they are likely to need other treatments in addition to what the treatment that you can provide. So, yeah, understanding diagnosis is important, but then understanding impairments is important because it allows you to plan a rehab program that's individualised for that specific patient. We took a deeper dive into the assessment of hips and hip pain with Dr. Joanne Kemp, a familiar voice. Now, Jo is a sports physio. She's also a senior research fellow at La Trobe Sport and Exercise Medicine Research Centre here in Australia. Jo covered some really interesting points about the interview and the subjective, objective tests that she still finds valuable and not so valuable, and how she might cluster those together to get to an answer. Now, Jo has actually done a physio network practical where you can take a deeper dive and watch her do her thing we're going to put a link in the show notes which will give you a seven day free trial of that practical you're going to love this episode there were a lot of takeaways and pearls my name is michael risk and this is physio explained okay welcome joan thank you for joining us thanks for having me you've done one of the very first physio network practicals where you kind of took us through a, a patient assessment and a patient treatment, but today we're going to talk about the hip assessment, and we thought we would start with the subjective assessment. So off air, we were talking about after your subjective, you should be pretty clear on the diagnosis. How would you get to that point? What questions would you ask to get to that point? There's a lot of questions that you would just ask anyone with a musculoskeletal problem, but I think there are some really key specific things in the hip that you can ask that really give you good information. So The location of somebody's pain is actually one of the most important questions to ask them because where they're feeling their pain will give you a really strong direction in what the likely structure is that's potentially the source of their pain. So if you think about the Doha classification, first of all, which divides that hip and groin area into five clinical entities of pubic pain, adductor pain, psoas pain, inguinal pain, and hip pain. Generally speaking, pain coming from those structures will be located where those structures are. So having a good understanding of anatomy and asking someone where the location of their pain is, is a really, really good starting point. And then going in to ask them about their pain. So how does it present? Is it an ache? Is it a sharp pain? What are the aggravating movements? So somebody with hip impingement, for example, will find movements that involve flexion, maybe adduction. So things like crossing your legs, stepping up onto steps, up hills, and those sorts of things for hip impingement. Whereas if you're looking at a hip instability or hip dysplasia, it's often more hip extension movements that are problematic. So they might report pain if they stride out so that when their legs at the back in extension or other movements where they go into hip extension. So asking about, you know, does your hip ever feel unstable or feel like it's going to give way is important. And then also looking at asking them questions about Other symptoms like mechanical symptoms, so clicking, catching, locking can often give you a clue that there could be some sort of intra-articular labral or cartilage pathology as well. Family history is another really important one, so often hip problems run in the family and so asking them about family history of hip problems and also their own history of playing sport because we know that an older patient, for example, if playing a lot of sport does put you at more risk of developing hip OA, but in a younger person, if they've done a lot of sport, it might predispose them to having issues such as CAM morphology, for example, that we know is load dependent and develops in adolescence. So those sorts of things can give you some really good clues. And then also taking into account the person's age as well, like it might sound obvious, but an older patient, you're going to be potentially dealing with osteoarthritis. 
or some sort of tendinopathy issue, but in younger patients, you might be more looking at hip instability or hip impingement type issue. Those sorts of things, I think, are all just important factors to consider. There's something about their hip that seems to match up a little bit more neatly than other areas of the body. There's just the feeling I get and what you're reminding me of with the Doha classification. I guess that's what you're alluding to is a good history should get you fairly close and location of pain get you fairly close, right? Yeah, absolutely. And we were also speaking to diagnosis after the subjective versus impairments. So are we treating diagnosis or are we looking for impairments and how you approach that? Could you speak a little more to that? Yeah, so I think it's really important to have a good understanding of both. So patients really want a diagnosis. And I know that in some areas of musculoskeletal physio, there's a lot of nonspecific diagnosis. So, you know, nonspecific low back pain, for example. But what we know is that patients actually like a clear diagnosis. And I think that's important too, because it helps plan prognosis as well. Helps you guide them in what their likely prognosis is, what length of time treatment's going to take, what are the different treatment options, whether they are likely to need other treatments in addition to what the treatment that you can provide. So yeah, understanding diagnosis is important, but then understanding impairments is important because it allows you to plan a rehab program that's individualized for that specific patient. Want an easier way to improve your assessment and treatment skills? Introducing Practicals, where you can watch video recordings showing exactly how top experts assess and treat a range of conditions. It's the fastest way to develop your practical skills and enhance your clinical reasoning. Treat your patients like the experts do with Practicals by Physio Network. Click the link in the show notes to try it for free today. I've gone between these points and I'm seeing it in younger physios as well. I'd love your clinical experience here. Treating impairments, I found as a really nice way when I wasn't sure, when I was a bit stumped, but I knew when I was a bit stumped, I could treat impairments. And that kind of felt like a way out for me until I got to the diagnosis I was able to review with someone. What's your take on that? I agree. And I think that it's always a really, really good place to start. So even if you don't have a diagnosis, if you know someone has certain impairments, it gives you a nice starting point and it helps you build confidence and build rapport with the patient. And you're going to be doing the right thing for them. And the hip's just an example, but it's the same in a lot of other areas as well, that even if in two different diagnoses, often the treatment will be the same because the impairments are the same. So for example, someone who might have hip impingement or they might have hip instability or dysplasia, there'll be a lot of commonality across the impairments that you see in terms of you'll see muscle weakness around the hip, you'll see trunk weakness You'll see changes to movement patterns. So the way you treat them, there'll be differences, obviously, but there'll also be a lot of similarities across that as well. So I think it's understanding impairments is as important as the diagnosis. And when I do an assessment with a patient with hip pain, in my own head, I split it into the two things. I think, okay, so this is what I'm doing for diagnosis and this is what I'm doing for impairments. And I make sure I cover both of them in my assessment. That's a really nice way to categorize it and a nice framework. I guess the critique of what I just described, what I've felt from others as I'm learning is that to treat impairments might be a little biomedical, is like we're just chasing all the things wrong. But I think what you're doing there is pairing them together in a framework. That's really nice. Yes. The way I like to think about impairments as well is that we have the physical impairments or the biological impairments. We definitely take on that biopsychosocial framework. So we think about some of what we might call psychological, whether they're impairments or maybe psychological things that you need to treat. So 
things such as fear of movement, catastrophizing of pain, those sorts of things equally part of that impairment model. And then even some of the social challenges, maybe impairments is the wrong word, maybe we can call them biological challenges, psychological challenges and social challenges. You know, special challenges are things like helping someone fit in an exercise routine when they've got young children and they don't have any time to do it or helping them get the right routine when they don't have access to a gym or if they have financial issues and they can't come and see you very often. Some of those social challenges are as equally important to address as the psychological and the biological challenges as well. If we think about impairments, it's broader than just the physical tests that we will do, you know, muscle strength, range of motion. It encompasses all of those other elements as well. Yeah, that's a nice way to be clearer on the word impairments and really taking into account other frameworks. I like that. Thank you. I was thinking about the testing, the objective testing and some of the research we have that our objective tests aren't that strong. Does that apply to the hip? And I feel like I remember us talking earlier, Joe, about is there some research where you can match the subjective with the objective and that becomes stronger or am I making that up? Talk to me about that. Yeah, it's a good question. Look, I think in terms of research matching the subjective to the objective, there's not a lot of research that really strongly directly links them, but I think you can use, take some of your objective tests, so your diagnostic, like your special tests or diagnostic tests, for example, and put them together with some of the subjective things. So we were just talking about pain location as a classic example and aggravating movements. And so if you take those two things, then you can marry them up with the diagnostic test to really help firm up your assessment. So for example, the classic impingement test, which is the flexion adduction internal rotation test, has a really high sensitivity. So it's a good test for ruling out the hip joint as a source of pain. So let's say someone presents with pain in the anterior hip or groin. You know, they might say that they have pain when they go up and down steps. So you're starting to think, oh, maybe it's a hip impingement type thing. But then you do the flexion adduction internal rotation test and it's negative. That sort of telling you, well, maybe it's not an intra-articular source of pain. Perhaps there are other things that are creating their pain. So it might be referred from the lumbar spine, for example. So I think marrying those two things up Another classic one is the ABHIA test, which is the abduction hip extension external rotation test. And that actually has a high specificity for diagnosing dysplasia or hip instability. It's a bit like a, the shoulder apprehension test. And so, again, you can marry that test up with what the patient's told you, that they might have pain in the anterior or lateral hip. They may have pain over psoas. They might have feelings of giving way and instability, particularly when they take long strides. So, you can marry up your subjective findings with some of what you see in your diagnostic tests as well. Are there any clusters of tests purely objectively that you're putting together that help you with any one of those diagnoses? In terms of research of clusters of tests, there hasn't really been a lot published like there have been in other areas. So for example, SIJ or lumbar spine, there's been some work that's been published in clusters of tests. In the hip, there hasn't been any work done that's looked at the diagnostic accuracy of combining those tests together. So we don't have a lot of information research published on clusters of tests, but I think clinically, yes, you can take some clusters of tests and put them together. So putting together your range of motion tests. So for example, with hip impingement, there'll often be restricted range of motion, particularly in internal rotation and flexion, whereas with hip dysplasia or instability, there might be painful range of motion, but excessive total combined range of motion and excessive internal rotation. So taking that, putting it with the diagnostic test that we just described, and then looking at your strength test, for example, we know that in hip impingement, people are often weak in their hip adductors and extensors, whereas in hip instability or hip dysplasia, it's often their hip abductors and flexors. And that's because 
the hip abductors and flexors are trying to provide coverage to a shallow acetabulum. And so they become very painful and very sore and weak as well. So you can marry together those tests to help give you that clinical picture and help you understand what you're probably looking at diagnostically. A really nice clinical pal I hadn't heard of before. Are there any objective tests that you were using that you are no longer using around the hip? I think it's understanding why you're doing the test that's important. So perhaps, you know, a number of years ago, I might have used, say, the flexion abduction external rotation test. So flexion and then coming out into abduction external rotation. And I might have thought that I was using that as a diagnostic test for a labral tear, for example. And we now know that it's a really poor diagnostic test, has really poor specificity and sensitivity. But it's still a valuable test if you think that someone has limitations in that range of motion. But it's understanding why you're doing the test that's important. So you might do the same test, but it's the interpretation of that test. I think that's really important. Another classic example is looking at internal rotation range at 90 degrees of flexion. So that's a test where it can be used both diagnostically as a pain provocation test, but you can also look at the range of motion and limitations in that range to help you have a better understanding of that diagnosis, but also where somebody's impairments are as well. And the red flags around the hip, what might you be looking for in this objective or some of your objective tests? There's a couple of really big red flags I think you have to be aware of. And I think the first one is cancer or metastasizing tumor. We know that with breast cancer and the gynae cancers and prostate cancer that the hip joint's one of the first sites that it metastasizes to. So just asking people about their history of cancer and what type of cancer I think is important and how long ago it was, particularly if there's this non-specific pain that doesn't make a lot of sense. And then also bony stress responses and stress fractures are another big one that you'll often see around the hip. So particularly in the neck of the femur. So Having a good understanding of someone's load, how much sport they're playing, but also perhaps looking to see whether they are nutritionally deficient in some way, whether they have some sort of relative energy deficiency or other things that might predispose them to bony issues. So, you know, in women asking them about their menstrual cycle and how regular their cycle is can give you a lot of insight into whether they're likely to be in a state of energy deficiency, which does put them at higher risk of bone injuries as well. That's a really good and important clinical question that I'm noticing not a lot of grads are coming out with, and especially young male physios are a little bit hesitant to go there. We took the step of adding that into our initial consult notes. Any words of encouragement for, say, younger physios who are a little bit shy or maybe even embarrassed to go there? That's a good question. I have a daughter who's at the end of her high school ages and sons who are at uni, so I know that the younger generation, the girls are really comfortable talking about menstrual cycles and periods. They are not embarrassed. So if you ask it in a very matter-of-fact way, which is, is your menstrual cycle regular? Do you have any issues? Then most younger women will be very, very happy. It's like water off a duck's back in my experience to them. But again, you still need to be very sensitive to that. But I think asking as a matter-of-fact as possible, but perhaps if young male physios aren't comfortable to do it, having patients fill in a questionnaire or survey in the waiting room before they come in where they can answer that question without actually being asked the question might be a nice way around it as well, just to make people feel more comfortable. Yeah, it's nice to hear that's being normalised in education. I'm assuming that's happening in schools and that's making people more comfortable. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Joe. That was another wonderful podcast and thank you for your time with The Practical, which we're going to put a link to it in the show notes for people who haven't tried it out yet. Great. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you.